Hi, I was left behind along with Kurt Cameron, Lee Cato. And I'm one of the twins that played Michelle on TV's Full House. I'm Jeff Moles, and this is Breaking Church. It's a podcast that breaks down the walls of the church and builds up the body of Christ. On this episode of Breaking Church, we will look at two passages of Scripture. That's right. This is a bonus episode. <laughs> two bonus. passages. This is old school church. Two passages of Scripture that deal with the demonic and forces of evil in the world and how we move forward in a world consumed by those things. On our breakdown segment, we will be briefly looking at the story of the beginning of Moses' life. And in our Breaking Bread segment, our friend Leonard Curry joins us to reflect on the story of the Gerasene demonic in Mark 5. And then in All Hell Breaks Loose, we will summarize what we can take from these biblical stories and how they move us to action today. So here we go. Let's do it. Our scripture is... Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, through the second chapter, verse 10. Now a new king arose over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, where they will increase in the event of war, join our enemies and fight us, and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor, they built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses, for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra, and the other one Pua, when you act as midwives to Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him, but if it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every boy that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying, and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, 
Shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Well, Jeff, that was a lovely scripture reading. Oh, yeah, just beautiful. Beautiful. Um, but what were your impressions? My first impression was it made me think about Vacation Bible School when I was a youngster because we would do this program where we pretended that we were the 12 tribes of Israel and we stomped bricks. Like we actually got in a wading pool and stomped mud and straw and made bricks out of them. And that's what I thought of. I was like, well, I have stomped bricks before. But I don't think I quite did it to the level that these <laughs> these poor people did. Lee does not know how to process information. But that's what I thought of because that's what we did. That is... I don't know how I feel about that. I'm not sure how I do either, but that is... That's what happened. I want... Did they still do that? No. Well, good. I don't think they should... <laughs> I don't think they should do that. Um, that was not my first impression. Well, what was because first we did not do that in Jefferson, South Carolina. Oh, like all um, the stuff that you did was so great. Well, every time we read a scripture about Moses, I always think, I always go back to the Prince of Egypt, that movie, the cartoon, because I love that movie. Mm-hmm. And, and there can it was be miracles like, when you uh, believe. It was like a feat of its day. You don't remember when it first came out? People were like, this is just, it's like the best animated something. And Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey did a duet together, oh, and yeah. people lost their minds. There can be miracles. <laughs> yeah, do and that they sung that. Sometime. Yeah, we should. That'd be awesome. Um, and they sung that at my um, brother's graduation. <laughs> Perfect. It was 1999, <laughs> and people were losing their minds because it was like that was a good Mariah Carey. And Whitney Houston were together. Oh, yeah. I think it was the only time they ever sang together, right? I mean, as far as I know. Moses brought them together. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Yeah, he did. Brought Whitney and Mariah together. Yes. So that is what I always think. And, of course, it's horrible. Like, this this story is horrible. Oh, yeah. um, like, it's not the best story to read. Um Especially because it talks about slavery and killing children and all these things. Mm-hmm. But just like what me and Jeff are talking about, we have domesticated <laughs> these stories yes, we have. We have. to where we don't really think about what actually happened in them. So For sure. When we were stomping bricks at Vacation Bible School, we were having a good time. And I'm not exactly sure that's right. what was going on. Um, and I automatically shouldn't go to Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey when I hear this. Yeah. Although this is the beginning of probably the most epic story in our faith tradition. It's yeah. definitely the beginning of the the key story for the Jewish people and certainly a key story for Christians as well. So yeah. it's very important. Yep. In the story that we 
heard today from Exodus, really the the beginning of a, a really amazing story of liberation and freedom. We hear the beginnings of this new king rising up in Egypt where the Israelites were, and the Israelites were becoming more numerous, and because of that, there was some resentment that they were coming in and being more powerful. They were taking their jobs away, stuff like that. Yep. Stuff like we may hear occasionally today. So all through the story, you hear about these women who are making resistance to the power that's in their society, who are, you know, in the face of of these evil commands to kill children, this mm -hmm. awful thing, uh, taking steps to, to save lives. Yeah. Yeah, and I really like the... I don't like, I just find it very interesting. In this translation that we use, it's, it says the Israelite people, and the king is saying this, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's very telling, especially of the time that we're living in, the fear of being more, the fear of something, someone else being more powerful than you are. Mm -hmm. Or someone or some group taking away what you have or or taking away the power that you have now um, and I think that's kind of like the underlying storyline in this in this story because the king was scared that these people were going to take away his power take away a time where Egyptian kings ruled over all the land and did everything, said everything, and that was it. They made the law. And sure. and I think that's it's very telling of what's happening in the world today, um, that fear of that power being taken away and what, and what the things that we do that spur from that. Like this king was killing children. And I think about Pharaoh in a way, thinking about the kings before him, like what they did, how much power they had, and trying to keep that narrative going, and trying to keep that that way of doing things, trying to keep it there. Um, but these Israelite people are, are threatening that. And so there are all these things going on in that king's head, I think, mm -hmm. um, which is which is also very interesting to think about. Well, I mean, there are just so many examples in the history of the world of fear driving mm -hmm. oppression. Mm -hmm. You know, these awful things that humans commit against one another usually start in are rooted in some kind of a fear, yeah, a fear of others. So I think this is, is certainly another example of that. But then out of that fear, but and out of that other comes resistance and ultimately mm -hmm. their deliverer who exactly. delivers them from um, oppression from the Pharaoh. And so that's also something that I feel is just kind of cool. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a great... And I keep going back to the Prince of Egypt because I can like see the scenes in it <laughs> and how just how many people there probably were, how many Israelite people there were. Mm -hmm. But 
out of that oppression, there was a deliverer of some sort. So I think that's hopeful, mm -hmm. too. Breaking bread. So today on our Breaking Bread segment, we are here with Leonard Curry, who is a PhD student at Vanderbilt University studying ethics and society. He is also an ordained minister in the AME Church. And today, we are going to welcome him and talk about how we as people of faith, specifically Christians, encounter evil in the world today. And so, welcome, Leonard. Thank you, Lee. It's very good to have you here today. It's good to be here with you. Yeah. So... I know we want to talk a little bit about Mark, the Gospel of Mark, and specifically the story about the demonic in Mark mm -hmm. today. Mm -hmm. So take it away, Leonard. Um, <laughs> uh, it's kind of hard for us uh, moderns, if you will, to hear like about the demonic or mm -hmm. demon possession or any of that stuff. It's one of the hardest things to translate into contemporary times. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I ask myself, like, have I encountered the demonic? Yeah. Like, what is that? And, <laughs> you know, I, I grew up in a kind of maybe um, African-American evangelical culture where, you know, I would have friends who would say, yeah, you know, somebody was delivered in church on Sunday. And yeah. they would tell stories of people like... Um, uh, not speaking in tongues, but speaking another language that they thought was maybe the demonic. Or I heard some guy say one time that, like, a woman threw up a frog. Right? I mean, like, I don't know what, right? Like, where does all yeah. this come from? So, but one of the things that I encounter in the academy that I'm grateful for and that resonates with me is the demonic as radical evil. Um, and I saw that in the work of James Cone. And I saw that in the work of Dolores Williams. And I think that even my advisor, Emily Towns, picks that up. And I guess I'm thinking about it now uh, because I just preached a sermon on uh, Friday for like Men's Day Revival looking at the garrison demoniac in uh, Mark 5. And then, to me, what felt like confirmation was that the bishop then preached on... Um, the woman who Jesus calls a dog uh -huh. for Men's Day, which was kind of <laughs> ironic. He explained that, why he did what he was doing, um, and sort of uh, parallel social positions. But I think her daughter is possessed by a demon mm -hmm. in that story. Mm -hmm. So the demonic, it seems like in my academic life and in my like sort of religious life has mm -hmm. been a trope that's yeah. come around, I think, and particularly because of the events of Charlottesville um, and Forest Amy folks, the anniversaries of, or the anniversary of um, what happened in Charleston. Mm -hmm. And so, so our bishop talked about the demonic as anything that comes between us as breaking like the relationships, as preventing us from having um, right relationship with one another. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense to me um, it seems that maybe the demonic is also that which keeps us from having a right relationship with God, mm -hmm. right? So, mm -hmm. and that could be anything, right? right? 
But I also, in light of like white supremacism and supremacism writ large, right? It could be mm-hmm. any kind of supremacism, male supremacism, whatever, even Christian supremacism. I think that perhaps the demonic is is those distortions of our humanity, right? Like mm-hmm. it's the it's the demonic in the oppressor, right? Mm-hmm. Who oppresses others, but then it's perhaps even um, the dehumanized person who's forgotten their humanity, right? Like, who's yeah. forgotten what it's like to relate to human beings on a, on a human-to-human level or who's forgotten what it's like to relate to God. And so a form of the demonic is like being dehumanized as well, right? right? And taking that into oneself as if one is not human. Right. So, I, yeah, I've, I've been wrestling with that, with the demonic in our time showing up as that which dehumanizes us, mm. that which takes us out of right relationship with ourselves, right relationship with God, right relationship with with one another. And then it seems to me that Jesus offers something for us mm. in that regard. But this is a conversation I feel like I'm teaching. Tell me, <laughs> what do you think about that? How does that strike you? I think it's very, it's very interesting and I made the statement, um, I, I posted it on Facebook the other day, that I used to not believe. And I'm from a, a Presbyterian tradition where we don't talk a lot about demons or Satan or evil. And I just never grew up that way. I never grew up using that language. But the older I get and the more you experience, you experience evil in the world. Yeah. And the more I have come to really believe that that there are forces and there are there is something that that is out there that is evil and is demonic in some ways. And so it's very interesting that you wanted to talk about that today because it's something that I have thought about recently, and not just because of Charlottesville, but it's kind of surfaced more so since then to kind of define what that is. What 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 is that force and what is that evil? And it makes a lot of sense that it is a force that says you are not human enough or you are not your humanity is not enough. Right. Um, right. And I do wonder if that if that language also in some ways allows for grace and allows for healing or allows for reconciliation for people who who that force has affected mm-hmm. um, white mm-hmm. supremacists yeah. or even me as a white person to where I do things to perpetuate it if that language gives the ability for healing and gives the ability for reconciliation and not just gives kind of a cutoff like you are that person yeah. and you do not have hope mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like you're a white supremacist, you don't have hope, mm-hmm. um, right? Like in the that Bible, folks does. are delivered, right? Right, They're delivered from their demons, yeah, um, or demons are driven out, right? right, of persons who regain their personhood, right, mm-hmm. and their capacity to relate to people. Yeah. So yeah, there's hope there. I yeah. think um, sometimes I worry about um, our reframing, and it's inevitable. I think that. 
in order to think, we need categories. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you encountered the Bible. One encounters the Bible. I encountered the Bible. And mm-hmm. I'm like, what is this world that I'm inhabiting? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I grew up in the family of faithful people who kind of just naturalized for me that that was the world. Right. Mm-hmm. Like It was like, oh, no, that's just it just is what it is. Like right. there's nothing to be. There's nothing weird going on here. There's nothing mm-hmm. that you need to um, stop and ponder. Mm-hmm. But as I've come to make the faith my own, right, mm-hmm. um, there are moments where I'm like, what is going on? Like, what do we mean by demons? How do, how can we even think about, about that in our own um, world today? Right. And what I like about what Jesus does, um, I think it... I think that maybe there are multiple things there, but the first one is that um, there's hope, right? There's hope for people possessed by demons or who I would say in my own language are consumed by demons. Yeah. To, there's hope for them to be delivered from mm-hmm. that, right? For that to go away. Um, and in particular, when I was thinking about the um, garrison demoniac in, in chapter five, it seemed to me that that like illuminated something um, for our contemporary moment, especially. I hang out in, um, I guess, scholar activist circles. Uh, so people who do direct activism, and then folks who are whose scholarship I think is not about um, uh, scholarship for scholarship's sake, mm-hmm. but is about a kind of advocacy position, yeah. making that advocacy position clear potentially having that work lead to laws being changed, to public policy being written, or mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So it's a, it's a bit of a scholar-activist uh, group that I feel like I'm a part of. And when thinking about Jesus and the garrison demoniac, I guess I was thinking, like, you know, here's this guy who is being consumed by all of these troubles, the Roman, the Roman legion probably moved into his town. Maybe he didn't have a job anymore. Maybe the only people who could make money were the people who were selling those pigs, mm-hmm. right? Um, and the fact that they're like two thousand pigs, and the, <laughs> the gospel writer is clear to say that makes us connects the number to the number of a legion. Mm-hmm. A Roman legion is usually typically, I think, like three to five thousand, but it's thousands right, yeah. of persons. So we can make inferences about the political situation in which this guy who goes unnamed finds himself in his town. And, I just, you know, I sort of just, in the sermon that I was working on, just did a lot of imaginative work. Suddenly the Romans are there and they're soldiers and he's getting in the fights with the soldiers. And suddenly his rituals and his culture, he can't perform them anymore or they're denigrated. Suddenly he tries to go to the sauna if they bring their cultural program, right? So there's the baths and there's the sauna and there's the gymnasium and he tries to attend those things but in all those places he's ridiculed, right? Mm -hmm. So suddenly he doesn't find a place for himself in his own town. Mm -hmm. Suddenly um, that loss is all he can think about, Mm -hmm. right? Like is, and the voices of the soldiers are in his head and the voices of the people in, in the saunas and in the gymnasium and in the baths and, mm-hmm. and the, well, all the places are in his head to the point where he can't hear himself anymore, right? Yeah. I guess there's just, there's a kind of um, melancholic um, yeah. um, nature to this possession, it mm-hmm. seems to me, that, right? Yeah. There are so many other people 
are in his imagination that he can't hear himself. Right. So that when Jesus speaks to him, he says, who are you? He says, uh, I am legion for we are many, right? Yeah. This weird grammatical flip yeah. mm-hmm. um, because so many folks are inhabiting him. And it seems to me that like that there's a, there's a way that activists in our contemporary moment honor the dead by invoking them but never mourn them. Mm. And I wonder if our activism suffers from a kind of melancholy, huh. right? Yeah. That So our activism suffers from a kind of melancholy because all these folks are dying, and we don't mourn or lament their death. Mm. Instead, we make of their death something, right? But right. I think in trying to use their death, that death consumes us, right? It's the same right. kind of... It inhabits us, and we don't we don't let it go. We don't mm. metabolize it. We don't process it. We don't actually grieve. Mm. And it seems to me that that's the flip side of maybe a kind of white supremacism yeah. that is nostalgic, that mm-hmm. is sentimental, yeah. that um, longs for a day when really. It, it, we say make a maker great again, or it is said. <laughs> I don't say. I mean. I, I would say make America great by actually honoring the commitments that it has failed to honor uh, through its through its long history. Yes. But it is said, uh, one says, um, white supremacists might even say make America great again. And I think what's being longed for there, there's a sentiment or a nostalgia that's not just for a time that never was. What I think people want is a time when white people didn't have to pay attention to other people again. Right. Make America Great Again is make give us the eyes that Christopher Columbus had, that when he looked on America, all he saw was pretty land and never right. wrote anything about the, the inhabitants, the right. indigenous folks who were here. Yeah. Give us the eyes that Bierstadt had. Bierstadt does this famous landscape painting where mm. it basically the, the entire point of the painting is to send people west. Mm. But he completely erases all of the indigenous American tribes that were living in the mm-hmm. West, right? Mm-hmm. And he erases like the technology that had disrupted the land, and like uh, because his point was to sell an image, an mm-hmm. idea. And it seems to me that 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 white American longing for a time when we didn't have to pay attention to other people or they didn't have to pay attention to other people. I'm thinking about James Baldwin and how he would flip his verbs, Uh um, and people would be like, who are you talking about, James? Um, And this kind of activism that holds on to the dead without grieving Uh it, they both, to me, seem to be a form of, like, melancholic possession, Uh right, which is my way of blending, is my way of bringing Jesus into the present, right? right? To say that we are society possessed. Yeah. Um, we're society under the the thumb of the demonic, mm. um, and it shows up uh, in people who are attempting to do the good, and in folks who are sort of representative of the evil. Right. Um, and I guess the hope for me is that the demon can be cast out. Yeah. Right. Jesus says something that I think is really uh, powerful in that narrative. He says, um, you know, after he rids the men of the demons, he says, go home to your friends. Mm-hmm. Which I think is really fascinating because the story makes it out to be that, like, this man doesn't have a home no more. He stays mm-hmm. amongst the tombs, mm-hmm. right? Which, made, which for me, when I was reading it, made me think of, like, how we dwell with the dead mm-hmm. and how the dead dwell with us. 
Um, but he lived amongst the tombs. And Jesus says, go home to your friends. Like, you still have friends. Right. You still have a home. Like, there's still something worth celebrating, right? And mm-hmm. there's something that's there waiting for you, which... I, again, I'm fascinated by the possibility that beyond the melancholy and beyond the possession mm-hmm. is life again. Right. Um, so when I was turning it around for the sermon, um, I was saying, don't just fight the lie. Mm-hmm. Speaking to my activist brothers and sisters and kinfolk and kindred and trans, you know, everybody, mm-hmm. right? Siblings. Don't just fight the lie, but figure out how to live the truth. Right. Because you'll be consumed by fighting the lie. You can give your life to fighting the lie and never experience joy, never experience happiness, mm-hmm. never be human. Right. Which I think is the trick. Mm-hmm. I think the trick for activists is to spend your entire life fighting the lie and never be human. Right. And I think that the trick for folks who subscribe to white supremacy is to spend your life longing for a past in which <laughs> which never really existed yeah. instead of helping to create the life that you would like for not just yourself but all of those who are in your community right, right? so I think that that for me is how I'm trying to bring to bear um, Jesus speaking to the demonic yeah. in our contemporary moment all hell breaks loose So, in this segment of All Hell Breaks Loose, we wanted to kind of give a brief summary of how these two stories move us forward, Um, especially after last week's event in Charlottesville and just basically just how to move forward in a world where we are all consumed in some form or fashion by demonic force and forces of evil were all surrounded by it. And using the stories of Pharaoh and Moses and then the story that Leonard talks about Mark in Mark 5, the story of the demonic, I think it's kind of fitting to summarize it and say that we have to In order to move forward, we have to recognize the humanity within ourselves, and we have to recognize the humanity within others. And I think in order to do that, we have to have the help from others to do that for ourselves, and we also have to help others do that. And I also think that to move forward, we have to be able to really understand and to really see humanity and people we we actually and we use this word we want to demonize mm-hmm. i mean now it's white supremacists it's neo-nazis but when and i ask myself this like when is it time to look at that person and say you are you have humanity you what is keeping you from fully living in that fully living into your own humanity to where you recognize it in others and I recognize it in you. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how to do that. I don't know how that manifests itself for different people. But I have really taken away from what Leonard is saying that we have to 
recognize the humanity. We have to recognize that in ourselves and in others and really think about all the voices that are, are talking to us, all the, the forces that are influencing our decisions, and that and to like take it seriously like i said this before like i've recently just was like hell yeah there's there's demons in the world like that's the only way i can fathom the way in which humans treat other people or how how people's actions are used to hurt other people and oppress other people. And so it's actually taking that seriously and and figuring out what those forces are that that allow people or to make people do the things that they do. When I was hearing uh, Leonard's reflection, I thought about a quote from Howard Thurman that says, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do that because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Yeah. And I think, you know, that relates to both of the stories that we've, mm-hmm. we've reflected on today. You know, these women who resisted the Pharaoh's orders of violence and death and found a way that ultimately led to, you know, the, the, nurturing of a, a person who would become the deliverer of a people. Uh, we think about, you know, the the demoniac who was someone who clearly was in a life and death struggle every day and someone who was cut off from community, cut off from the the world around him, who was restored to that community, who went and found his friends, who mm-hmm. was... Um, you know, brought brought back to to the rest of the world, and you know, it's it's that coming to life, that choice that we can make every day to be who we are, to authentically live into our own created selves. That I think can be liberating for certainly for ourselves, but also for people around us. You know, each of us is called to resist these forces. Of evil that that are all around us, and I I kind of have a similar story to Lee that, you know, I've for most of my life, maybe not for most of my life, but for most of my adult life, I've said, oh well, I'm not sure I believe that there's a devil, and I think that everybody's basically good, and and all these things, and I think, you know, I have certainly looked at that, and you know, like Lee said, the ways that people treat one another, and um, the systems that we build to keep each other oppressed and to not allow people to live uh, fully human experiences are are evil, mm-hmm. and I think there there is that force in the world. And I think one of the the primary ways we can combat that is to make a daily decision to to be who we are, to let our light shine, as as the scriptures say, to um, you know allow ourselves to be fully human and live the experiences of human life that we've been given as a gift mm-hmm. and uh, to not not buy into to those systems that that kill yeah and the other thing I really liked about what Leonard 
was saying is... Can you tell we liked what Leonard had to say? It's oh, pretty good. He's, pretty he's great. Um, is that we, especially in our activism, how we, we must grieve and mm -hmm. we must do that processing so that when we do go out and do the work that we're called to do, we are doing it from a place of, of full humanity and connectedness, I think, mm -hmm. and not, we're connecting it to life and not connecting it to death. Um, and as Christians, we believe in, I mean, we're like, we're those resurrected people. We believe in that, that life will always overcome death. And so working from a place of, of life and that connection, I think, is something that Leonard was took away I took away from that being and I think that's how we move forward is that we do the things we do out of life but also grieving the death because people are dying and that is hard and it's hard to see it and it's hard to experience that but that it also takes grief and lament and not saying that they're that we will forget those who have died I don't think that's I don't think that's what we mean, but we also have to to do that work mm -hmm. in order it's to about, live. It's about living into their full humanity as well, right. and yeah. about celebrating that and capturing the joy that right. human life can bring us, yeah. and celebrating that, and not just um, you know looking at the the death, but of life and celebrating a celebration of life. Mm -hmm. Well, it's time to break up, but the good news is we can get back together again next week. Visit our website at breakingchurch.com. There you'll find links to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to comment, share your thoughts, and don't forget to subscribe to Breaking Church on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And if you've made it this far, leave us a review. But only good reviews, please. Only good ones. So now go out and remember our call to be deliverers. Deliverers from the demonic forces that consume us. Deliverers of others from oppression and fear. And deliverers of full humanity and lives of love and joy. Go in peace, y'all. I'll see you later.